How is everybody? Good, good, good. Hey, we have uh, a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to jump into this pretty quick. First, if you're new to the church, uh, we just want to tell you welcome. Really, really glad you're here. If you've been here for a while, you kind of know how we do things. If you haven't been here, um, what we do is we go through whole books of the Bible, okay? We've been working through the Gospel of John, uh, gosh, for several months now, quite a while now, and uh, we're a little bit, little bit more than halfway through. And um, what we're going to pick up on today, if you haven't been here for the story, we are in the last 24 hours of Jesus' time on earth, okay? So we are reaching kind of the climax, if you will, the crescendo of the story. It's getting into the very dramatic part of it. It's getting into um, kind of the heightened part of the lesson, if you will. Now, last week, as we finished up chapter 12, this is what we talked about. We talked about the fact that Jesus Christ has not assumed the role of judge yet, but he is going to, right? We know that from the gospel. He will come back. He will assume the role of judge. He will judge all of us, right? Individually, every single one of us. And so last week we talked about what is the standard by which Jesus will judge. And the standard by which Jesus will judge, he says, his own words, is by the word of God, right? By how we receive and how we respond to the word of God, okay? So everything we hear today, we're going to be held accountable for is essentially what Jesus is telling us, right? In chapter 13, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And again, we're going into the Last Supper. Most people know what that is, whether you're a believer in this room or not. Most people know what the Last Supper is. And for the next five chapters or so, it is going to be this conversation of Jesus and his 11, not all 12, because as we're going to see, one starts to betray him and desert him today. We're going to see Jesus and his 11, left over, having a last-minute conversation before Christ goes on to be arrested and be crucified, Okay. But the point of today's lesson is this. Last week was, what's the standard by which we're judged? Today, our focus, our thesis, our objective is going to be this, that we are commanded to love. That's going to be the, the main point we're going to hit at the end of this. But the problem with that is, is in our culture, in our society, we have no idea what love means. We throw this word around so haphazardly and so carelessly that it's lost all meaning, Right? I met this girl last night. I love her. And I'm like, no, you don't, right? So like, let's talk about what love is, okay? And so our main point today is that we are commanded to love, but we need to know what the biblical definition of love is. And we'll go at the end of the lesson, and we will hit that, okay? And we'll focus on that, all right? You should have a notes handout in front of you. If you have your Bible, the Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament, maybe 60%, 70% through your Bible. If you don't have the notes, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, I'm going to read it all to you, so it's, it's all going to be presented to you, so you can follow along. And it's also, if you have version, the Bible app on your phone, it's free. All of it's on there, the translation I'm using, the notes that, I'm, 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 uh, that I typed out for you guys is all on version as well, okay? So you should have all those tools in front of you, ready to go, Okay. Great lesson, guys. I'm just going to tell you, if you're new here, um, you might not know this about me. If you've been here for a while, you, sometimes you guys just you know how to tolerate me. I'm going to say some things today that you may not agree with. Um, everything from the Bible, I hope to support. I hope I support it well. Uh, but I do have opinions, and sometimes those opinions seep out a little bit, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize on the front end for that. But when we get, yeah. Someone at the uh, 7 o'clock service last night called me a chicken right? And so I'm going, and I stopped, and I said, I shouldn't say that. And I heard someone in the back go, chicken, and I'm like, all right, we're going, right? So like, <laughs> so we just went for it, right? Probably said some things I shouldn't have last night, but um, that's, that's my prideful man side of me. If you call me chicken, I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. Um, so don't do that. <laughs> uh, but, but again, 
hear me out today. If I get a little passionate about it, it's not because I'm a bad guy. It's because I feel strongly about certain things. And, and um, sometimes we can disagree and, and still follow Jesus and commune together and, and have a good time. All right? So we're going to do that today. I'm going to pray. You're welcome to pray for me because I'm extremely imperfect. And you're welcome to pray for me. And I'm going to pray for you. And we'll pray for our city. And, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Okay? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, we praise you, God. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on all of us today, God. Lord, I pray that you open up our eyes and our ears. I, help, I, I hope that we understand what you're giving us today through your word. Father, we pray for every single church in our community. We pray for the nonprofits in our community. Father, Lord, uh, as we plant this church in Woodbury this year, I, I pray, God, that you bless the churches in Woodbury and bless that community, God, and what Josh is going to do out there. And Lord, I just pray that you keep your hand on us today, God. Lord, let us love like you've shown us to love. Lord, let us truly understand what that word means, God, so we can go out and demonstrate it the way you want us to. Father, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. It's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 13, guys, okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so bear with me, here we go. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, by the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel tied around him. Now, if you've been with us, if you have to think of some key words that have come up in the Gospel of John this far, two of the biggest key words have been light and life. We talked a lot about how Jesus is the light and a lot about how Jesus is the life. Now, a shift takes place starting in chapter 13 where kind of the main key word is love, not just any kind of love, not like I love pizza, right? This is agape love, the deepest, most passionate, I would give my life for you, I'd do anything for you kind of love. And we're going to see in this chapter that John describes this conversation with Jesus very, very eloquently, and it starts off from the beginning. John writes that the love that Jesus has for his own in the world prompted him to come into the world. And I love how he writes this. He says, love them to the end. He meant to the end of his life on earth, to the end of their life on earth. And then we know it actually goes beyond that to eternity, right? That he loves us and he loves us to the end. And we know even beyond the end into the next life, right? So like I said, imagine if you're a non-believer, you had never heard of Jesus. You get a copy of John's gospel. You know, he wrote it in, in, in about the 7th century A.D., right? So late 60s, early 70s A.D. You get a copy of this, right? Or someone reads this to you. You're following along with the story, and it hits you. You are in the last 24 hours. You are in the most dramatic part, right? It is building up, and there is this tension, and the story is just getting so heavy, right? That's where we are. And Jesus has this last-minute opportunity to share, to put more into his disciples before he leaves this earth, and he goes on, right, right before his arrest, right before his crucifixion. That kind of sets the scene. To add to the scene, to add to the drama, to add to the suspense, we have a bad guy, right? We have an antagonist. And it's not just Judas. 
John isn't ambiguous about who was really behind the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And who was really behind the betrayal of Jesus was not Judas, it was actually Satan. And though Satan had planted the seed in Judas's heart, it was Judas that opened up the door for the devil. Here's what happens, guys. We can all be Judas if we do not get a grip on our sinful nature. If we don't address our selfishness or our greed or our rivalry or our jealousy or our rebellious spirit, what happens is, I don't know if you guys know this or not, Satan doesn't kick in the door like the devil from legend, right? Like big old horns and he's red and kicks it down. He's like, serve me, right? That's not what the devil does. The devil is subtle. Genesis chapter 3, the way he, he tricked Eve into eating the plant from the tree that she wasn't supposed to touch is he walked up and he said, hey, did God really say that you can't eat that? And he planted a seed in her, right? And it grew up into something that it shouldn't have been. Same thing with Judas, same thing with us. That's why we need to make sure we uproot anything that's contrary to God quickly, right? So it doesn't take hold. So we see who Judas is. We see that the devil's at work there, but we also see again who Jesus is. Verse three reminds us that Jesus is gracious, that he's all powerful and he is God and he came with a mission. So look at this, rather than zapping Judas, here's what's mind boggling about Jesus. Jesus knew before he even created humanity, right? Before the foundations of the world were created through Christ, he knew that he was gonna be betrayed. He knew that this was gonna happen. But rather than zapping Judas, Jesus allows the scenario to play out giving Judas opportunity after opportunity to give himself back to God, to do the right thing. And it's a tough truth, but this is the truth. Our spiritual demise is not based on things that happen to us from other people. We can't blame it on other people. It's not about our circumstances. Our spiritual health is our responsibility. It is our choice. I hate to break this to you guys. When all of us stand in front of the great throne of judgment of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to blame me for your relationship with Jesus. You're not going to be able to blame your parents or your neighbors or things that have happened to you. I hate to break. All of us have turbulence in this life. If there's one thing God promised us, he said, in this life, there will be suffering. Not for some of you, for all of you. So none of us can blame shift it over to someone else when we stand in front of Christ. It's going to be me and him, and I'm going to have to give an account for my decisions, for what I did, okay? So we see a shocking display of grace and humility from Christ to teach his disciples just one of the biggest lessons. He gets up from supper, right? He takes off his robe and he breaks every social norm on planet earth. I was studying this and it said in Jesus's time, no culture would have a superior get down on this level, take off his robe and wash the feet of a subordinate. No culture would do that in this time. I don't know if there's a culture in our time that would do that. They would humble themselves to that level. And look at this. Jesus doesn't just wash the good guy's feet. He washes all of their feet, even the one of the one that's going to betray him. And look at the implications that has for us. The Bible says we don't just love those that treat us well. Anyone can do that. Even non-believers can do that. You can, you can associate with people like you. We are called to go beyond that, that we are to love those even who have ill intent towards us. That's what we're called to do. Jesus knew that this guy was going to stab him in the back and still washed his feet. And we are to learn a lesson from that. So much so that Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. He said, make your attitude that of Christ, 
who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to, to, to give him his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The scripture goes on to say, even to death on a cross. This is the model for us, that how Jesus gave, how he was obedient, we are to do that for people around us, okay? He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. You will never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That's why he said, you are not all clean. Now, John's interesting, right? The one that wrote this book of the Bible. John liked recording conversations, and he really liked recording conversations between Peter and Jesus. I don't know if he was like eavesdropping and he's writing it all down or what he was doing, but he remembers all these conversations. Now, Peter is fascinating to us. If you're a Christian in here and you've read a lot of stuff about Peter, we identify with Peter because Peter's like us, especially the men in the room, right? Peter's a guy that lost his cool when they were coming to arrest Jesus, cuts a guy's ear off, and Jesus is like, come on, Peter, you know, and put it back on and said, don't do that. And what's interesting about it, it was probably more dramatic than that, right? What's interesting is Peter wasn't going for the ear. Do you guys know that? He was probably going for this guy's throat, right? And by the grace of God, the guy didn't die. Jesus, you know, used this as a teachable moment. But we identify with Peter, right? And so when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, Peter recoils and says, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet ever. And on the surface, that seems like a humble thing to do. But in fact, when we reject people's help, it shows the pride of us that think that we don't need God to cleanse us. We'll take care of it, right? So it's a false humility that Peter shows in this instance. It's not true humility. Here's what's interesting about Peter. He was too humble to let Jesus wash his feet, but not too humble to tell Jesus what to do. Interesting, right? We do the same thing. We don't, uh, hey, I don't need prayer, but let me, let me give everyone else good ideas, right? Let me give, God, let me give you some good ideas. Like, he needs those from us. And Jesus said, listen, if I don't wash you, we don't have any, we don't have any part with each other. We can't fellowship with each other. This is another hard truth. There's so many hard truths in this lesson. This one comes up. There is no place in the kingdom of God for those who have not been washed by Christ. The problem isn't, does Jesus want to wash everyone? He does. It's his will that none should perish. He is ready to wash our feet, our proverbial feet, right? The problem is, are we humble enough? Are we obedient enough to let Jesus get into the dirtiest parts of our lives, right? Are we willing to let him get to the nastiest parts of us so he can clean those things up? And so the question has to be begged, right? How often do we need Jesus to clean us up? And this gets into a theological argument that people waste way too much time on. Jesus says this, if you go back and you really study how this is written out, he uses two different verbs for bathing or washing. The first one he used is in the past tense, which means that you have been cleaned, right? That is done, right? One and done, right? You're clean. The second verb that he uses indicates that we must continually be cleaned. So what happens is this, we are fully cleaned, bathed by Jesus, saved, if you will, 
and we, when we become a Christian, we are clean, we are made new. But we also, because of Jesus' words, need to go back for continual washing and forgiveness because we make mistakes. And so we need to go back to Him to constantly be revitalized. So how do we accept salvation? How do we accept God's grace? Now listen, there's two camps. There's one camp that's way over here that says, uh, you pray one time when you're a kid and you're good, right? There's nothing you can do to jeopardize it. Everything is set in stone, rock and roll. People come up and they say, hey, I got a brother that, you know, he gave his life to Christ when he was 12 years old, so I know he's saved, but he's addicted to heroin, he's cheating on his spouse, and he beats his kids. And I'm like, really? I don't, I don't see a whole lot of fruit of that salvation. In the moment, yes, God might have touched his heart, but something came amiss in this time. And then there's this other camp of people that say you're never quite saved, right? I don't know if anyone came from that kind of church. My wife and I did, right? You sneeze wrong and they're like, Psh, there goes your salvation, dude. You know what I mean? Like they think you just lose it at the drop of a hat and every little mistake or if you stub your toe and say a colorful word, like boom, it's gone. And, and that's wrong too. So these two extremes, in my opinion, are wrong. And I think the scripture supports that. The best interpretation of verse 10 and 11 is that we are completely saved when we choose to follow Christ. You are renewed. You are a believer. You are saved. You are in his palm, right? You're in his hand. But we must also become dependent on him by a continual application of what the cross did to our lives every single day. In other words, when do you need Jesus? You need him all the time, right? Not just once. We need Jesus all the time which means we must live repentant. We must pray. We must read the word of God regularly to become what Christ wants us to be, right? Right? Okay, thank you. Good. So we don't know the state of Judas's heart when he became a follower of Jesus. It may have totally been in the right place, right? We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But we see that somewhere along the line, Judas took a wrong turn, right? You never meet anyone who's named Judas. Why? Because it's the most tainted name of all time, right? Hey, what's your name? Judas. You're like, you know, I don't want to be friends with that guy. <laughs> so you just don't hear that. And again, we cannot know for sure how Judas started off, but we see how he ended. And what we learn from Judas is that if we don't keep a close proximity to Christ, right? If we don't walk with Christ every single day, there is no limit to the depths of sin that we can fall into. I've used this analogy a billion times in this church about Ted Bundy, right? I say it all the time because it's the best analogy. Ted Bundy is a man who was attractive, he was affluent, he was influential, he was charismatic. No one would have ever thought that this guy would have gone on a murderous rampage raping and murdering 60 plus women. And so James Dobson talked with him the day before he was killed, right? He was executed. The day before he was executed. And James Dobson said, what got you started on the road to doing what you did? And, and Ted Bundy simply said, I started looking at my dad's playboys. That's where it started started looking at my dad's playboys. I started looking at sadomasochistic pornography. I started watching this stuff. I started acting it out with prostitutes. I started raping people. I started killing people. And we have no idea how far the devil can take us if we don't get a hold of our sin, okay? So when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and this is well, because I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
You are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know I have those I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so then when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who has sent me, okay? So Jesus is a phenomenal teacher. He's an object lesson teacher, right? And so he's done this great example, this great object. He puts his robe back on, he sits down, he says, okay, guys, what did I just teach you? What have I done here? Now, what he was teaching them was not how to wash people's feet literally. That's not the point. There's nothing wrong with feet washing. You guys ever been to churches where they do that and everyone dreads the day that someone's going to see your toes, right? And so there's not that there's anything wrong with literally washing people's feet, but that's not the lesson Jesus was trying to teach them. Jesus was trying to tell them that when it comes to humanity, you have to get into the ugliest, nastiest parts of people. You have to be willing to make yourself a servant and get into the mud and be willing to help clean up people's lives. That's the lesson he was trying to teach. And what we see is, is that God honors the humble. The best servants in the world are servant leaders. When people are leaders but not servant leaders, they often turn into dictators. And so Jesus told the 12 that he is their teacher. He's like, you're right. You call me teacher and Lord. That's correct. You need to call me that because that's what I am. But he shows them that they are to model his example and simultaneously lead and serve. We've seen this in people like Mother Teresa, right? Everyone knows who that is, right? From Calcutta. We uh, see this from guys like Sam Walton. He started a modest company called Walmart, right? If you research Sam Walton, he is a fascinating individual. Sam Walton started what is a Fortune 3 company, one of the biggest three companies on planet Earth. And when you go back, he, he's passed away, he died several years ago, but when you go back and research him, people from all over the world were trying to figure out why is Walmart so successful? So you'd have businessmen from Sweden and Japan and China, they would wear their $3,000 suits and they would fly out to where Sam Walton was wanting to learn from this guy, right? So Sam Walton would pick them up at the airport in his old beat-up Ford F-150 wearing overalls, and he'd have his dog named Old Roy. That's where they got the name for the dog food, right? He'd have Old Roy in the front seat, and he would make these businessmen pile into the front of this old truck, right? He would take them to his modest home. He would cook them bacon and eggs, and he would ask them questions about their life and their business. The thing that made Walmart so amazing, right? The thing that made him so amazing is this man was a servant leader. He was humble and God honored that humility. You have guys like Albert Schweitzer, who was a surgeon, a brilliant doctor, who was a philanthropist and a theologian and a philosopher. And he gave most of his time to help people for free, to help them physically and mentally all around the world. God honors servant leadership and humility. We also see that love is the ultimate mark of the Christian, that if you and I, this is us, right? If we are humble, if we are respectful, if we honor other people before ourselves, we will be blessed by God. We often talk about love like it's like this brain-busting theological discovery. <gasps> We're supposed to love people, right? And it like blows our minds. And this is the most simple response to the love that God has shown us. Again, and we'll talk about this at the end, our problem isn't that we, we don't know that we should love, it's that we don't know how to love people. We don't know what the definition of love is, and we're going to get into that later, okay? So in a world that is looking for joy, in a world that is looking for contentment, 
We as Christians, if you're in this place and you believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, if we follow and act on the principles found in chapter 13, God will give us joy. So here's a formula for achieving contentment, right? That if we will forgive other people, if we will serve other people, and if we will biblically love other people, Christ will give us joy. That's what the Word says. But to do this, we must reject a critical spirit. Guys, let me tell you something about critical spirits. Anyone can point out the problem. Very few can come up with a solution. We live in a culture that is excellent about pointing out the problem, and I'm just waiting for someone to give us some answers, right? Don't have a critical spirit, the kind of spirit that walks in and always tries to find out what's wrong with the place, right, and what's wrong with everyone else. That we need to reject complaining. We need to reject slander and gossip. Do you know that the Bible puts gossip and haters of God right next to each other in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? That's how big of a deal it is to God that we don't talk bad about other people that we are to pursue harmony with other people. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed are the ones that can bring people harmoniously together. doesn't mean we condone everything or turn a blind eye to sin, but that we treat other people with respect and dignity. Here's the other thing about this situation. Jesus knew before picking his friends that all of his friends would let him down. Do you know of all the 12 disciples, only one of them showed up to his crucifixion, John, that wrote this book of the Bible? Do you know he's also the only one that died a natural death? That's a fun fact. So, 11 of the 12 disciples deserted Jesus in his worst time of crisis. That's not very good statistically. And we pick on Judas, right? Ah, oh, Judas, he was the bad guy. He denied Jesus one time, and Peter denied Jesus three times. The difference is, is one repented and turned around, and one didn't. But we see Jesus knew that all these people would let him down, but that didn't stop him from engaging humanity. Are they going to let me down? Yeah, they're going to let me down, but I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to go after them. And so the rejection of Judas to Christ, this was actually talked about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. King David wrote about this in the Psalms. And Jesus went on to tell the disciples that those that accept him will be representatives of him. And whoever receives a representative of him receives God, receives Jesus. So look at this. Isn't it an amazing thing that God chooses people like us, you, to represent him? Jesus entrusts the most valuable, most important information that's ever been given down to us from heaven. He trusts it with us. Now, what's the prerequisite for that, right? What is God looking for? He's not looking for talent. He's not looking for exceptionalism in the world's eyes. No, no, no. He's looking for humility and he's looking for obedience. That's what he's looking for, right? Moses wasn't talented. David was a runt. But those are the people he went after because they were willing vessels. They were humble and they were obedient and God used them to do amazing things. And it's the same with us, okay? Guests still awake out there? Awesome. We're getting there. So when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, let me pause there for a second. John wrote that about himself. <laughs> it's kind of humorous, right? One of the disciples, the one that he really loved, right? That's what, that's what he wrote was reclining close behind Jesus. 
Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was Jesus was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he told him this, since Judas kept the money bag. Some thought that Jesus was telling him to go buy what they need for the festival or that they should give some money to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Let me, I'll focus on that here in a second. So just because the disciples didn't pick up on him quoting Psalms 41.9, Jesus blatantly said it, one of you is going to stab me in the back. One of you is going to betray me. And what we see, and I don't mean this derogatory towards the disciples. They were very ignorant in a lot of ways. They were very naive in a lot of ways. And because they were ignorant and because they were naive, it was easy for Judas to kind of go under the radar, right? They thought that his relationship with Jesus was just as great as anyone else's, and they just couldn't see it coming. Even when Jesus dips the bread and wine, gives it to Judas, they missed it. They didn't see it. They were oblivious to it, okay? If you get into Matthew 26, if you get bored tonight and you want to keep studying about this chapter, go into Matthew 26 where it talks about the Lord's Supper, right? The Last Supper. And 26 of, of Matthew goes a little bit deeper. And it says that all of the disciples one by one said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. And they were genuinely concerned. Judas was different. I'm led to believe that Judas did not believe Jesus was who he said he was, right? Because if he did, he would have been a little bit more afraid of him. But he arrogantly looks at Jesus and says, surely it's not I, Rabbi, knowing that he is the one that's going to, to stab him in the back to betray him. So Jesus looks at him in Matthew 26 and he says, it's you, it's you. Now, whatever you're gonna go do, go do quickly. If you're going to turn your back on me, get it over with. Now, what we see in Judas is this is that appearances can be deceiving. This is why we're told in the Bible not to simply judge based on appearances, that many can have the appearance of a Christ follower. They can say the right things. They can even garner massive crowds around them. But in their hearts, they can be filled with selfishness and evil. It's become commonplace, right? You flip on the news and there's another mega church pastor that's had an affair on his wife or he's been doing drugs for years or he's been embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's become commonplace to us. We're not shocked by those things anymore. But what we see in this scene with Jesus and the 12, listen, listen to this. Jesus dips the bread into the wine, hands it to Judas, and he's giving him one more chance to turn back and come back to him. Now, this is significant. If we were in this day and age, in this culture, and I invited 12 of you to my house, you would typically have a guest of honor. You would pick someone that you would kind of honor above everyone else. And you would typically do that by dipping bread and wine and giving them the first bite, right? And so Jesus dips this in and looks at the one that's going to betray, betray him and says, you're my friend. Here's your last chance. And look what Judas decides to do. He takes it, but his heart is not in the right place, and it says that Satan enters into him. And that is the only mention of Satan in the entire Gospel of John, specifically about Satan. And as far as the other disciples knew, they thought Judas was on the same page as them. But that's why we need to be careful, guys. Matthew chapter 13, we need to be careful when we look at people and try to separate, oh, this is a legitimate Christ follower and this isn't. That doesn't mean that we don't call things out or judge a tree by its fruit, right? But we need to be careful with that. 
And look at how this passage ends. Look at the writing right here. John, so eerily, he talks about how Jesus is the light all the way up to chapter 13. And look at how he ends Judas's conversation with Jesus. And it was night that Judas willingly stepped away from the light and went into the darkness. He went into the night. Look at how that is written, right? And then we get into the last part. Here's where I want to hang out for a while. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews that where I'm going you cannot come, so now I tell you. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Look at the symbolism in Judas leaving the group. Listen to this. When the sin and the rebellion and the arrogance left the room, then Jesus could get to work. Look at that. When the sin had left the group, now they could get to business. Now they could move forward with their mission. And the same is true with our personal lives. God, I'm not, guys, I'm not trying to be mean or judgmental in this, but people come to us all the time. They say, we can't feel God anymore. He doesn't answer prayers anymore. I don't feel the Holy Spirit. I don't hear God speaking to me anymore. What's wrong? And we talk a little bit. And there's typically unrepentant sin in people's lives. Here's the thing about God. He will not fight to occupy space in your heart if you have another God already in there. He will not do it, right? And so what we have to do is we have to empty ourselves of our sin, right? Ask God to forgive us. Empty ourselves of our sin so we can be filled up with the Holy Spirit, right? We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have two things com com competing for our, our heart within us. We must rid ourselves of one to be filled of the other. And we see that in this story. And so John writes that Jesus says, I'm with you only a little while longer. And Jesus is doing this last-minute preparation, right? He's about to depart this world, and he's reminding his disciples that where I'm going, you can't come yet. One day you can, but not yet. So over the next, I think it's five chapters, we see this night kind of play out in this conversation, in this confusion of the disciples. So Jesus is reiterating everything he says to them, reiterating. And the biggest thing he says is this. He says, I give you a new command. And this new command is kind of like the foundation of everything John wrote in his contributions to the Bible. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, it all kind of hinges on this new command, which is to love other people, right? Now here, I don't mean to argue with Jesus and his words. I would never do that. But when he says it's a new command, it's not really a new command. All throughout the Bible, we know that we are to love, right? It says that way back in Exodus 20. That's the first commandment, to love God, right? To have this love for him. But what we see here is it's not necessarily a new command, it's a new object. Not just God that we're to love, but we're to love other people. And then we see there's a new method. How do we do it? We do it like he did it. So it's not just that we're told a new thing, we've always been told to love, but now Jesus says, love other people and love them the way that I love you. That is extremely important. So I always talk about how I'm gonna make something in bright purple, right? Uh, because PowerPoint can do that. So I really want you to take this, this, this next thing home with you, if you will. And this is how people will identify us. 
We will be identified by how we treat other people. How Christians treat other people will set the tone for how people perceive us. Now, I think the church gets a bad rap, right? You guys see on your Facebook all the time, 10 reasons why millennials don't go to church, or 18 reasons why Gen Xers hate church, or 34 reasons why baby boomers don't go to church anymore, and everything is the church's fault. Guys, I hate to be this. Some people don't go to church because they don't want to change. Some people don't go to church because they don't want their problems exposed. Some people don't go to church because they're lazy and they'd rather sit at home and do nothing. It's not always the church's fault. Here's what we're called to do. We are called to love the community like Jesus told us to love, but their response is up to them. I know that sounds cold and heartless, but just because 100% of our community doesn't come to our church doesn't necessarily mean that the church is doing everything wrong. That we are to love other people like Christ loves us, but some people are going to reject Christ simply because they don't want to follow, not because there's anything wrong with Christianity. Are we broken? Heck yes, we're broken. We do a lot wrong, guys. But look, let me just give you a life lesson. If you leave everything that offends you one time, don't go out to eat, don't get a job, don't have kids, don't get married, don't do anything. Lock yourself in a bubble, right? Become like a bubble boy or bubble girl. Don't let anything around the world penetrate you because people are going to let you down, even in the church. Do you guys have hypocrites in your church? Heck yes, we have hypocrites in the church. I've been a hypocrite in the church. There's also hypocrites at the place I work out. There's hypocrites at where I buy my groceries and get my coffee. I cannot distance myself from the world because people sometimes suck. Right? Man, I'm sorry. That was like a soapbox. I shouldn't have. (laughs) So here's the thing about our faith, guys. According to Jesus... We will not be known by our worship. We will not be known by our facilities. We will not be known by our talent or our popularity or even our religious observations. We will be known by love. But that begs the question, right? That begs the question. What is that? What is that? So we have, pardon my language today, but we have this bastardized perception of love. It is, we don't know what that word means anymore. We throw it around so carelessly. In our day and age, we believe that love has no boundaries. How often do you guys hear that in your culture? Love has no limits. Love has no boundaries, right? Love has no boundaries. Love is never offensive. Love would never hurt your feelings. Directly goes against the words of Jesus, by the way. I discipline you because I love you, he says. But love has no offensive. It never offends. Love always condones. We live in a relativistic society, which means if it works for you, whatever. As long as it doesn't affect me, you go for it. And that's not love. That's not love, but we believe it condones everything. Listen, whenever people say God is love or Jesus told us to go love, you're right. He he didn't just say go love. He said, go love like I love. So we cut it off halfway and we miss the bulk of what Jesus is trying to teach us. He said, go love, but he said, go love by the model that I've showed you. Now, what we learn from that is this is that there is a proper method by which we demonstrate love. And if there's a proper method of demonstrating love, that means there must also be an improper way of demonstrating love, or that's not love at all, right? So again, it begs the question, if there's a proper way to love, how do we do that? I didn't put this on your notes, but it's worth maybe marking or remembering or thinking about. The two chapters, everything I'm going to write up here, I didn't come up with any of it. It comes from Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is where we get probably the clearest definition of what it means to love. First off, how do we love? We love without hypocrisy. 
The most well-known scripture in the Bible and also the most misinterpreted is Matthew 7, chapter 2. Or I'm sorry, Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 2, where it says, judge not lest ye be judged, right? Great philosophers, Master P and Kanye West know this well, only God can judge me. And so we use this a lot, right? Love doesn't judge, and that's incorrect. Love does make judgments. We all make judgments. You have to. Love makes judgments, but love doesn't make judgments hypocritically. So if I tell you not to look at porn, I better not be looking at porn. If I tell you to be good to your spouse, I better be good to my spouse. If I tell you to read your Bible, I better be reading my Bible. I can judge that it's wrong for you not to pray or read your Bible if I'm holding myself up to that standard and you can judge me back on that standard. So love is not hypocritical. Love also detests evil. It does not like things that are evil. What is evil? Evil is anything that contradicts the Word of God. Simple definition of what is evil. What is evil? Anything that contradicts the Word of God. We are to detest things that contradict the Word of God, and we are to embrace things, good things, that line up with the Word of God. That's what love does, okay? Love honors people. We really drop the, and I'm not even trying to get into this, we really drop the ball on this in 2016. Election years are awful for Christianity, We show our butts, we lose friends, we hurt feelings. All of our Christianity goes out the window because we want to support the party that we're we're behind. And so people all last year wanted to drag me into political arguments, right? And I'm just not going to get into the mud with you on that. I have thoughts, I have feelings about it, but I'm going to honor you. I'm not going to make fun of you because you disagree with me. I'm not going to post hateful stuff. I'm not going to talk bad about you. That we are to honor people. We're to be diligent with people. We're to be patient with people. And we're to be hospitable with people, to show people hospitality. Listen, love persists in prayer. If you want to do the best thing you can do for your kids, pray for them. If you want to do the best thing you can do for your spouse, pray for them. If you want to do the best thing you can do for people that disagree with you or may even hate your guts, lift up their name to God, right? Put them at the feet of Christ. Pray for people. True love cares more about the soul of someone than any other thing right? That's what we care about. Do I care if you have food and clothing? Of course you do. But even more than that, I want you to hear the words of Christ. I want you to know that your soul is secure. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that God touches your heart. Love shares with others to meet other people's needs. Let me hang on this one for a second. Listen, I'm not a socialist, and I'll tell you why. Socialism is a mandate from a government to be benevolent. I don't need a government to tell me to be benevolent. Christ tells me to do so. I'm a Christian. I don't care about capitalism and socialism. I care about Christianity. That's where I want to hang out, right? And so you don't have to clap for that. But, but here's the thing. We get into these arguments. We need to give, right? And the government needs to make us give. If we have someone forcing us to be benevolent, we have a deeper heart issue that we need to address. And here's the other thing, guys. In North America, where we live good, I don't care who you are in this room, you're beating about 70% of the world. And when some of us have a $200 a month cable bill and there are kids in Columbia that don't have food to eat tonight, we have an issue. I know no one likes that. You know why? Because we are a materialistic society. How dare you say that I need to give up something that I've earned? It's not me, man. It's not me. When you get into the book of Acts, it says that they sold all their possessions so they could help out the community of believers. No one in our church should go without food. No one in our community should go without food. No one in our world should go without food with the amount of affluence that we have in our country. The world is looking at us, a nation under God, so we say, 
to help the world, right? Well, that's their problem. I don't, that's not that. That's not the way Christ thinks. That if we have, there has to come a time with us, me too, guys, there has to come a time when we look at our home, we look at our cars, we look at our bank accounts, we look at our clothes, we look at and say, we have enough. We have enough. And there's people that are hurting. I can sacrifice my cable to make sure that a kid has health insurance, to make sure that a kid gets proper dental work in another country, to pray that a kid has food, to pray that Bibles are put in all the nations or it's illegal, all these different things. We need to give of ourselves so people have the basic necessities of life. That's what love does. Love also blesses those that persecutes them. But Corey, they hate us. Pray for them. But Corey, they're gonna hurt us. Pray for him. Jesus didn't stop while he was getting nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers. He said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're confused. And do you know what happened to a lot of those Roman soldiers? It says that right after he died, the earth shook and several of the Roman soldiers said, surely this was the son of God. Now, if Jesus would have spat on them, they wouldn't have given their life to Christ, the Roman soldiers. So we sit we sit back and we talk about immigration and we make it a political issue when we take humanity completely out of the equation. God forgive us when we start looking at people as problems more than children of the king, right? You don't have to clap for that either because I know that it offends some of you and I know it goes against your politics, man. But are some coming over here maliciously? Heck yes. Good people are always going to be attacked. But there's also women and there's also children and there's people that need us. If you want me to really get Jesus jukey on you, the Bible says, welcome the sojourner. Welcome the one that needs help. Do I think we tear down the borders and open up our doors? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about if people are here because they're getting killed in their country. My God, what is wrong with us? That we're more worried about the comforts of our neighborhood than the kingdom of God. What is wrong with us? And I didn't intend to go, no, please don't clap for me on that. My heart, is, my heart is selfish too, guys. But we've got to step back and say, what did Jesus tell us to do? Pray for those that persecute you. Bless those that want to hurt you. That's what he said. I cannot escape the words of Christ. And some of you get so offended by that. And some of you will probably leave this church. I'll get nasty emails for that. But I just don't care anymore. I'm just more, I'm just more concerned with what the Lord thinks of our community. I'm more concerned with that. Love does not slander. Love does not gossip. Love does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not prideful. Love rejoices with people when they succeed. And it cries with people when they're hurting. You know, the only way we can do that, though, is we have to get out of our own world. We have to put down our cell phones for a second long enough to see that there are people hurting. We have to give of ourselves enough. We have to be present. We have to be there. Love is humble. Love has a proper estimation of itself. Love doesn't think more of itself or less of itself. Love has a proper estimation. I know my weaknesses and I know my strengths, right? That I approach you with true humility, not a false sense of humility, not an inflated sense of humility, but a proper estimation of who I am. Love is not self-serving. And love doesn't envy other people's things. Listen, I want to be benevolent and give you things, but just because I have a nicer house than you may have doesn't mean that I need to sell it and give it to you. I've worked hard for that house. That just because someone has something nicer than what we have. Guys, we live in a generation that is so covetous. 
How dare that rich person have that nice house? I don't have that. That is breaking a Ten Commandment. That is wrong. That is evil. Their house and their belongings and their bank account is between them and the Lord, right? It's not your business. It's not my business. I need to be concerned about what God has entrusted to me, not what he's entrusted to anyone else. Love doesn't envy other people's things. That is wrong. That is a sin. Love acts properly and it acts respectfully, even with people different from them. Do you know in the Bible, Simon the Zealot would have been a hardcore left winger, right? And the Roman centurion would have been a hardcore right winger, and they both followed Jesus. Do you know that we can still have a cup of coffee with people who voted differently than us? Do you know that we can still share a meal with people who disagree with us on certain things? They may even disagree with us on Christ. And we can still have a cup of coffee with them. And we can still act properly and respectfully with them. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings. That doesn't mean that if you're being abused by your husband that you turn a blind eye to that. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. But that means if someone has hurt you and they've genuinely asked for forgiveness, you cannot keep bringing it up. Why? Because Christ doesn't do it with us. He lets those things go. When we stand in front of Jesus Christ at the great throne of judgment, he's not going to look at me and say, hey, Corey, I know you asked for forgiveness, but you did this and this and this and this. He's not going to do any of that because when I ask for forgiveness, he takes those wrongdoings out of his ledger, right? Out of his book. So when I walk up to Christ, if I've lived a repentant life, he looks at me and he says, Corey, well done, my faithful servant. Come in. I'm going to be like, what? Really? Wow. (laughs) Because he has wiped those things clean, right? Love rejoices in the truth. What is the truth? This is the truth. Love rejoices in this. And the last thing is this. Love endures. We don't love others because we accept or because we expect to get something in return. Guys, this is depressing, but let me in, let me in I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. You rarely get out of people what you put into them. I don't mean that to discourage you. I just want to tell you, you rarely get out of people what you put into them, rarely. But that's not why we do it. We love people regardless of what we get in return. We love people because Christ first loved us. And he directly looked at his disciples and said, now I give you a command. You go out and love people like I've loved you. Even if they're going to stab you in the back, even if they're going to let you down, even if they're going to hurt you, go love them. Love endures to the end, just like Jesus He loved his disciples to the end. We are to love people around us to the end, to the end. It endures. If it's your first time here, guys, I don't, I could care less about Republican, Democrat, socialist, capitalist. I care less about all those things. This is what I care about. I don't say things to shock people. I don't say things so someone will tweet something controversial or say something bad about it. I'm not doing it to, to, to get some kind of emotion out of you. But the Bible says this. How can we love a God that we can't see when we can't even love people that we can see? That's what the Bible says. So if we say we love Christ and we are not loving others like he has loved us, there's a disconnect. Something's not firing correctly. And we need to address this. 
Here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do. Um, you introverts are going to hate my guts. Uh, I would like everyone, if you're near somebody, great. If you're not, you need to get near somebody. Don't let anyone be alone. Uh, we're going to pray for each other today, all of us in this room, okay? So if you want, um, would you please find someone next to you? Put an arm around them, hold their hand, uh, put a hand on the shoulder, whatever you want to do. Don't let anyone be alone. Germaphobes, we have plenty of hand sanitizer out in the foyer. <laughs> No one's alone, right? No one's alone. Hey, listen, you may not know the person that your hand is on. You may never, never have met them. But listen, guys, man, if we're going to change the world around us, the church is going to have to start loving. We're, we're going to have to start learning how to love each other first. And then we can go out, right? And then we can go out and properly love the world around us. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. and I'm going to get you out of your comfort zone. I would love for you to audibly pray for the person next to you, to where they can hear you, you can hear yourself, right? I'm going to pray over you, just kind of praying for all of you in general, but I want you to genuinely pray that their home is blessed, that their family is blessed, that God protects them. And if you're in here and you're not a believer, even if you don't believe in Christ, at least let the love of people that follow him, let us be there for you. Just accept this, this small token of, of our love that we would pray for you, even if you don't agree with us or believe in us. Let's pray for each other and let's lift each other up. If you want to ask someone if they have a prayer request, guys, knock yourself out. The point of this is just for us to lift each other up. And then we'll take communion and then you guys can go enjoy your day, okay? I'm going to pray for you. Please make yourself at home and pray for each other, all right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. We praise you. Jesus, for everyone in this room, Lord, I pray that you just start to cover them up, God. Lord, protect them. Provide for them, God. Lord, let us fall in love with each other, God. Lord, let us depend on each other, Lord. Let us seek encouragement from each other. God, bless the homes represented in this room. Bless the families, the marriages, God. Bless the single people in there, God, that they would be protected, that they would find the right person, Lord. Lord, if we have any unrepentant sin, God, Lord, let us confess those things. Let us be filled with your Holy Spirit, God. Lord, we love you, Jesus. We thank you, God. Lord, I just pray that you strengthen our community, God, that we can go out and that we can affect the world around us, Lord. Lord, let us love one another. Let us share with one another. Let us lean on each other, God. Lord, let us call each other out on our sins and our faults, God. But Lord, let us encourage each other as well, Jesus. Lord, I love you, God, and you're so gracious. If you're in this room, there's communion all the way around you. If you want to know how Christ loved us, he loved us to the point of dying a, a horrible death for us. Everyone is welcome to take the communion as long as you've asked God to forgive you of your sins. There's people up here in the front that'll pray for you. If you want to continue to pray for each other, guys, we have all the time in the world. Don't worry about it. And as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to tell you something really quick. I didn't always love people. I loved God, but I didn't love people. And I had to ask God to give me a love. And I remember being in a prayer room, and God broke my heart. And I started looking at people differently, like he looked at people. If you're not feeling that love for people, ask God to give you that. Be cautious, though. Because if you ask for that, God will give it to you. And it'll mess you up. You won't see people the same. 
You'll love people. Your heart will start to break for people. God can do that to you. That's what he wants to do to you. And if you ask him, he'll do that for you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. As we take communion, as we continue to pray, God, Lord, we just pray that this day has honored you. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters till I see him again. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I love you guys to death. Thank you so much for putting up with me today.